Howdy, folks. It is I, your host, Sunny, also known as Dynamic Symmetry on Twitter and Tumblr and many other places. And welcome to Keep Singing, the Rambling Dead edition. Uh, today we are going to be doing episode four of season one, Vatos. Uh, not as many feelings about this as the last one for a variety of reasons, but uh, what opinions I have are fairly strong, so um, we'll get into those. Those of you who are coming to this for the first time, in case you don't already know, what I am doing is I am doing a episode-by-episode episode rewatch of the entire show from the beginning all the way up to now, I guess. I don't know. We'll see how long I get this summer and what my schedule allows for. But yeah, that's what I'm doing. And as you can probably hear, I'm out on the patio again. Uh, last time, again, um, more of you seemed to like that than didn't. So it's it's not as nice a day as it was last time. Um, it's actually pretty fucking humid and kind of gross. But in the shade with breeze, it's pleasant. So yeah, come hang out on my patio with me and let's talk Walking Dead. I don't have tea this time. I have lemonade, given the uh, current temperature and, and you know overall climatic conditions I'm dealing with. And I also have a clove, which I'm going to smoke as I talk, if you don't mind. Uh, I really like cloves. I only smoke them now and then. They're kind of a treat. But you know, sitting outside, I got some lemonade feels like kind of a nice time. So before I get to the episode, uh, let me go ahead and plug Patreon for just a really quick second. Again, as I say every time, if you enjoy this, if you enjoy listening to my opinions, if you like listening to me opine, and you want to help me keep doing this, you want to help me justify the amount of time that I put into it, you can help me out with that, as I said, by going to patreon.com slash dynamicsymmetry. I have some goodies available at various levels, and you can go ahead and check that out, and if anything tickles your fancy, and give me a couple bucks a month. It's absolutely fantastic when people do that. It helps me afford things like paying for this Podbean account, which is not free. It helps me afford things like upgrading my microphone, which I was able to do with the proceeds from my Gone Patreon this past fall. Uh, helps me do things like go to Wiscon this coming uh, end of the month, which is kind of important for professional reasons as well as being fun. Which, by the way, if you're going to be in Madison, Wisconsin on Memorial Day weekend, uh, come say hi. Uh, if you're going to be anywhere in the area, come to Wiscon. If you don't already know what Wiscon is, go to wiscon.net, I think, if you're not already familiar with it. It is the country, I think perhaps the world, actually, oldest feminist science fiction and fantasy convention. It's fucking rad. Uh, it's literary and fandom focused, like both. It's, it's, it's like the biggest, biggest emotional and intellectual hug I ever get. It, the people I have dragged to there have come away saying that was kind of life-changing because it is. It's just, it's fucking amazing. So if you're going to be anywhere in the area on Memorial Day weekend, uh, yeah, come check it out. Just pop in for a day because you can do that. You don't have to pay for the whole weekend, as far as I know. Anyway, yeah, uh, now that I'm done babbling about all that bullshit, let's get to it. Let me light up here. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> don't smoke, kids. Unless you're me, in which case it's fine. So, Vatos. Yeah, uh, oh man. Uh, see, this this episode, this episode is noteworthy, first of all, because, and, you know, forgive me if I'm completely fucking this up. Uh, I, I might just be missing, you know, information the way I do sometimes. But as far as I know, this is the first episode in the season to be written by Kirkman alone. Uh, which is, you know, it's... If you if you know me, you know that I have feelings about Robert Kirkman, and they are not positive. Uh, by the way, uh, apologies for the the lawnmower noise. Um, I could go back inside and record it in there, but I, I kind of don't 
don't want to. So you're just kind of stuck with it the way I am. Uh, I have feelings about Kirkman and they're not positive. I don't think he's a very good writer. I don't think he's a particularly nice person. I mean, I don't know the guy. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, working with incomplete and decidedly second, third, fourth hand information here, but he just seems like kind of a dick, you know? And, you know, judging by how he writes, he seems like he might have some problems with women and people of color, you know? So, so yeah, not, not a Kirkman fan. So, it's interesting for that reason. Uh, I, I wasn't, when I first watched the season, I was not watching this episode with kind of an eye toward analyzing it from a Kirkman point of view, or at least from kind of a Kirkman framework. Um, it's, it's interesting when I do that. It, well, when I get to the fate of the nursing home, I will have more to say about that. But I, I, will, I will say that it, in terms of how it handles everything, it like combines the stuff about Kirkman that I actually like, and I don't hate everything. I, sh I should say that. I mean, I, I read all of the comics until I got to shortly after Glenn's death, at which point I got bored sick with Negan and just kind of tired of the misery porn and I left. You know, it wasn't kind of a flounce of disgust. It was just like, oh, there are so many other things I could be reading with this time. But, you know, I read up until that point. I devoured the comics. I read them voraciously. Whatever else you might want to say about them, it's easy to get hooked on them. Um, and, and they read fast. They're page turners which, you know, helps kind of the overall sense of addiction and suddenly you've been reading them for hours and you have no idea what happened to all that time. But yeah, it's, it, there, there is stuff going on here that I like because it's stuff that Kirkman does that I like. And there's stuff going on here that I fucking hate because it's stuff that Kirkman does that I hate. Uh, let's, because I normally do this kind of, I, I go through my notes and I kind of look at what I was, the notes I was making as I was watching in, in chronological order. Let's just tackle my notes in that respect. Hang on, inhalation. So I'm going to be doing this with kind of a nicotine buzz. That's fun. So we start out, of course, with Daryl freaking out, continuing where we left off the last episode, because he has seen Merle's bloody hand, and suddenly he's pointing his crossbow at Rick. And, okay, you know, like like I freaked out about last episode, I love Rick and Daryl, and I love Rick and Daryl when they're all cuddly and, you know, you're my brother, and it's sweet and, and wonderful, and I love them also when they're just completely at each other's throats in the first season. Uh, and hopefully a little bit at each other's throats in season nine, by the way. That'd be kind of cool to go back to. So he, you know, he's instantly pointing his crossbow at Rick. And, and I should briefly reiterate some of what I said about Daryl in the last episode, which is that he's he's violent, but he's not necessarily violent because he enjoys violence or because he wants to be violent. He's violent in a kind of an instinctive knee-jerk way. So his response to feeling overwhelming rage and grief in this moment, he's looking at his brother's severed fucking hand. And it's, I think it's only after he calms down and does a little bit of thinking that he realizes, wait, Merle's probably still alive. This is actually, you know, in the most morbid way possible, this is actually probably a good sign. Because, you know, he cut his hand off and he's not here anymore, so either he turned into a walker and somehow maneuvered his way off the roof, or he's alive and he made some kind of an escape. Or he at least he was alive when he walked away. But, but uh, I don't think Daryl would have pulled the trigger or whatever, you know, it is for a crossbow. I, I don't think he ever would have done that. I think he was just pissed and his immediate reaction to being pissed was to point a crossbow at somebody and Rick was, you know, I, I, by the way, I think it's interesting that he pointed it at Rick and not T-Dog, you know? I, it, it would have made sense for him to point it at T-Dog right off and he didn't do that. 
and it, it's it's a little tricky to talk about it like this because I'm sort of talking about Daryl like he's a real person and um, Kirkman could have made that decision to have it go that way for any number of reasons. But you know, let's let's analyze Daryl. Let's do what I often do and analyze Daryl like he's a real person. His decision to do that, you know, he's he was identifying fault in an interesting way, and I, I think that he was in that moment like buying into. And you know, T Dog wasn't lying. T Dog wasn't selling him a story. He was buying into what T Dog said about how like, look, I tried to go back for him. You know, this this stupid fucking accident happened and I dropped the key and I had to run, but I did try to save the guy. Oh, it's like getting punched in the lungs in the best way. And he, he you know, he, he believes that T-Dog actually did, to some degree, do some measure of due diligence. So his immediate rage object is not T-Dog. It's, it's Rick. And I mean, you know, that's actually... Like I said, that is the more fair way for it to be directed to begin with. Rick is the guy who handcuffed the guy to the roof. T-Dog didn't do it, and T-Dog did try to fix it. So yeah, he, he points he points the bow at Rick, and you know then we have kind of this fun Mexican standoff. And it's, it's just, in terms of dynamics, it's another... The, the first season is full of great little dynamic moments where we establish these characters' relationships with each other. And it's another one of those moments that's great because it both emphasizes what the current dynamics are and it gives you some indication about where they might go. Uh, Dar- you know, Daryl Daryl is kind of at these people's throats. He's not getting along with anybody. Uh, it's his, his place in the group is not as rocky as Merle's was, clearly, but it's still kind of rocky. But on the other hand, he does put the bow down and he does cooperate with people for the rest of the episode in order to, well, I mean, to find his brother, but in the end to get Glenn back. To get the, find his brother to get the guns and then to get Glenn back. Like, getting Glenn back actually kind of becomes the whole... Uh, Glenn be kind of becomes the MacGuffin, you know, a little bit. Not really. That's not fair to Glenn. Glenn. But Glenn becomes the driving force in terms of what everybody is trying to do. The guns in a secondary sense, but really Glenn primarily. And that's, you know, that's, that's cool. And it, it, it indicates a lot of stuff about where Daryl might go, I think, feeding on into season two, where he starts to settle in more with the group and he's cooperating even more. But, but yeah, you, you, you get this wonderful little Mexican standoff moment. It's, it's great. Um, Daryl, to, to, to talk about Daryl a little bit more in terms of how he reacts to the scene that greets him, the grisly scene that greets him on the roof. Daryl's a little crazy. And I, I, I think that his, he, he's, he's a little crazy in terms, I'm, I don't mean like in terms of his actual mental illness, because he is mentally ill. I mean just in terms of his erratic, his potential to behave kind of erratically, because he does some in season one, he, that doesn't happen quite so much in seasons two, three, and four. But then in seasons five, starting with when he shoots Dawn, really, and, and then proceeding from there. Uh, his behavior has the potential to be pretty erratic, and, and he, he makes decisions, I think, that might kind of surprise and alarm the people around him at the time. So, like, I have to ask, hang on, let me have some lemonade and I will ask. This is good lemonade. You should come sit here with me and have some. I have to ask, what the fuck is he planning on doing with the hand? Yes, it ends up coming into play later because he uses it to, to freak out the poor kid. But like, what is, why does he pick up the, what is he intending on doing with that hand? Is he going to give it back to Merle? <laughs> like he, he believes in that moment that Merle is alive. So I don't think it's, it's a question of, you know, 
picking something up so that you have something to bury later, so that you have something to kind of serve as a memorial object. He's picking up the hand because it's like he doesn't want to leave any part of his brother up on the roof. And it's, 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 it's detail-oriented in the way that Daryl is naturally. You know, Daryl is the kind of guy who focuses on small details. He picks stuff up. He carries important stuff around with him. And, and he, he thinks to pick things up that other people might not. Like, I'm thinking in season four when he picks up the, the mineral, the stone thing that people have asked him, that one guy's asked him to look out for because he kind of collects them. Daryl thinks to do that. Um, so this is, I think, an, an aspect of, we're seeing an aspect of his character that holds true over the seasons in that respect, but also he's just, it's nuts. Why is he picking up that hand? I mean, maybe, I don't know. I'm trying to think like if it was somebody I really cared about, like if it was my sister, my husband, would I just be able to leave part of, literally part of them up on the roof to rot in the sun? And I don't, I don't know. I think that if you're in a situation like they're in, where the world has fallen apart and a lot of rules are being suspended, people are people are going to behave in weird ways. Uh, back when I was doing uh, season eight recaps, I mentioned this, and, and of course I am now forgetting the name of it, even after I forgot the name of it and then looked it up before. Uh, the, the tendency of people in disastrous situations to focus on strange and ultimately kind of impractical and meaningless things. And the example of that that I was using on the show was Michonne trying to put out the gazebo. When, you know, like, in terms of practical things, that was a really dumb decision and she shouldn't have really done that. It was incredibly dangerous. She was putting herself in danger for no really good reason. But she emotionally had a very good reason in that moment and it was because she was watching her life go up in flames and this was something that had deep emotional significance to her in that moment and she was trying to save it. So to an outside observer, it wasn't reasonable, but to her, it was deeply reasonable. And, you know, I think, I think you could say that something similar in that case might be going on with Daryl here. You know, he's, he's doing something that, to me, as an outside observer, it looks fucking ridiculous. But to him, it, I mean, he wouldn't be doing it if it didn't make sense to him. It, it, it clearly does. But, yeah, what the fuck is he going to do with that hand? He's not going to sew it back on. So, yeah, uh, interesting, Daryl. It's an interesting, interesting little decision you made there. Proceeding from there, uh, of course, we make a jump back to camp. There are some, there's some, there's some more frustrating stuff that's going on back at camp, although it's not going on to the degree that it was before. There's, okay, I, I just thought of this and I'll say something about it in a minute, but I, I want to, I want to jump on Shane again for a second here. This is, this, this whole thing up until up until the end of season one and the beginning of season two, I think is going to be kind of a giant Shane hate fest. Um, because I, I, I said last episode that I don't think that Shane is written especially well. He's a bad person, but he's also, I think his badness isn't being written very well. And in season two, I think it's done a lot better. And he's a villain and he's still a dick, but he's a lot more of a sympathetic villain in some ways especially the very end, which is, you know, horrifying. And I think I use the term, I use the word Shakespearean and I really would consider it that. You know, he's kind of, he's undone by his own weakness. Uh, it, you know, it's even older than Shakespeare. It's kind of classic tragedy. Uh, but, but Shane is, Shane is kind of on the edge. Like in, he's, he has already beaten up Ed and clearly, you know, that was great and cool and Ed deserved it, but also it put everybody kind of on edge. But here's the thing. Hang on, more nicotine. 
here's the thing about that. I get the strong sense, watching people's reactions to Shane, that he's already given them cause to be uneasy about him. Like, more than we've seen. And this might just be me reading too much into it, or it, 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 might, it might just be the way that it's acted, and, and, and I'm, you know, I'm reading too much into what's there, and it's, it's just, or, or it's, slightly, it's slightly uneven writing, of which there's you know, plenty. I, I don't know, but the, sense, the strong sense I get, again, analyzing this as if I was watching something real, the strong sense I get is that Shane has been a little on the edge for a while, and that the, the rest of the group has been a little on the edge where Shane is concerned. And that makes me sort of wonder, you know, there's, there, we know some stuff about Laurie and Shane getting out of the city, and we know a little, we know little hints and inklings about how this group kind of fell in together. But there's also a lot we don't know. Uh, I, I mentioned that I really wish that I knew more about how the Dixon brothers got hooked up with this group and, and kind of what their relationship was initially. Why, why did these people even accept, you know, these two guys as any kind of part of the group when they really, you know, Merle is, Merle is dangerous and Daryl's just kind of an asshole. So, so why, why did they end up tolerating these guys? You know, whether it's, whether it's Merle's fighting ability and military background and Daryl's hunting skills or what, I don't know. But there's also, you know, there's stuff with Shane that we didn't see. And I, I just, I find myself wondering, like, why? What has he shown them? What have they seen? What has Laurie kind of been overlooking? Because Laurie, especially in season one, and not so much in season two and season three, she's confronting some really hard, ugly truths in season two and three that other, other people aren't. And I don't think that that's written in a way that's supposed to be admirable, but I actually end up admiring her a lot for that because, you know, she's looking some ugly shit in the face and she's not blinking. Um, you know, I might not necessarily agree with the choices that she makes, at least at first, but she she is making those choices based on a very hard, unflinching understanding of her situation. But in, in season one, she, she strikes me as somebody who's willing to just kind of look past things when it's inconvenient to notice them. And I wonder, what, what about Shane has she been forgiving? What about Shane has she been overlooking? He's, he's capable of being violent in a way that we only really, we, we, you know, we see hints of it again when he's beating up Ed, but we see him potentially being violent and aggressive toward Lori at the, uh, at the end of the season. So, you know, I, I, like, when he jumps on her in the woods and, and you know, and then, and then they have sex, like, the, uh, like I said, if that was Rick, that would be fucking hot. And, and Don Bernthal isn't bad to look at either, but you know, I have my, I have my thing about Rick. But it's, again, if you're looking at pure practicality, A, it's stupid. You just really shouldn't do that in a situation where people are already kind of on edge and ready for something to jump out at them and kill them, uh, even if they're not as on edge as they probably should be, because uh, they're not. The group in season one is not the group in season eight, clearly. But, but also, like, that was a dick move. Like, I would not if, 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 if it was me and my husband in that situation and my husband did that to me, I would be like, we are not fucking now. Like, like that wasn't cool. You scared me. You pissed me off. Um, I'm ready for something to literally kill me. And you think make me, you made me think I would die for a few seconds and I'm not cool with that. And that wasn't arousing. And I'm going back to camp now and you can just be by yourself with yourself. So yeah, I don't know what, I don't, I don't really know. I don't know what to make of that, but it, it, it does, makes me wonder. All right, eliminate and then I'll go on.
Okay, so something that I, I kind of lost my shit in a really good way about uh, on Tumblr not too long ago is the the way in which Daryl and Merle, you know, they hook back up in season three and Merle calls Glenn, you know, that Chinese kid. And Daryl looks at him with just like this, I cannot even believe you expression and says, he's Korean. And Merle says, whatever. And of course, you know, that is a direct callback, kind of reverse callback to what happens in this episode where Merle, uh, where, D- where Daryl says, you know, you got some balls for a Chinaman to Glenn. And Glenn is like, I'm Korean. And Daryl's like, whatever. Because that, that is not a distinction that he cares about at this moment or at any time, really. But then in, in season three, and I'll, I'll squee about this as soon as we get to it, you know, he's, he's like, bro. Like, this matters. This is my friend. He's Korean. What the fuck? Not all Asian people are the same, Merle. And it's such a great little moment. And so so it's it's cool to kind of come back to this episode when Daryl is still very much season one Daryl. And he's still coming out from under Merle's influence. And, and you know, just, just see. Kind of, huh. It's, it's cute. I, I think that maybe it's not awesome of me to kind of be going, ah, it's cute. Racism. It, I mean, because it is. It's fucking racist. Daryl's throwing around an ethnic slur. It's not cool. Um, but but on the other hand, like, it's not... Uh, I, I mentioned... I, I talked a little bit last episode, I think, about how Daryl's racism and Merle's racism are kind of different. I mean, they're both bad, but Daryl's racism is just ignorance. It, it's it, ignorance and kind of an ingrained mistrust of people who aren't like him. And, you know, he's grown up kind of in a racist context, so, so that, that stuff's there. Yes. But he very like I think his natural inclination is not not to care very much about race gender or sexuality and I'm I'm not saying that in like a he's you know he's like pseudo liberal colorblind he doesn't see color he just he doesn't see color in the sense that he doesn't view it as something that he has any personal reason to care about because he really doesn't. Um, I, I think that this this comes out even more poignantly when he starts interacting, really interacting with queer characters in season five. He just doesn't seem to give a shit. Like he's not surprised. He's not thrown by it. He doesn't care. It's I think to him it's just people being with people. Daryl I think sees the world very much in terms of these are my people and then there's those people over there and I'm out for these people and those people over there can go fuck themselves. I, that, that isn't how he used to be. Clearly he used to think that there were people on the other side that weren't his people that were also maybe worth saving. Uh, but at this point all he cares about is us and them. And he makes no distinctions other than that. And he's doing that with Glenn here. And he does that with Glenn later on. And, you know, in, in, in season three, he cares about it with Merle because it's, I think to him, it's like a respect thing. Uh, but other than that, he just, you know, his, his, his racism is something I don't think he has a hard time kind of shedding because it never was an important part of his personality to begin with. Or his Merle is just awful. It's, it's, it's much more part of who he is in the sense of anger and resentment and re- hatred toward non-white people. So, yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a cute moment, it's a meaningful moment, and it's especially meaningful, again, like I keep saying, looking ahead to, to how things end up being um, in a couple of seasons and, and you know, in, in more seasons after that until the point at which it ends horribly and tragically. Hang on, I need more nicotine. The nursing home. Uh, the, the, see, the nursing home, this is where we hit. Something that Kirkman does well is 
to is writing conflict between people and I don't say that in a way I, I, I don't mean that he you know he does really deep conflict or really complex conflict because I don't think in a lot of respects he does deep complex characters but he makes conflict between characters entertaining you know it's it's not something you really want to think about a lot but it is entertaining to watch so he's doing that in this episode, and it is something that I enjoy watching. I started out talking about the Mexican standoff between Rick and Daryl and T-Dog. But it's, it's something else that he does that I, I like, but that also pisses me off because I know where it's going to go every time, is he kind of throws out these good people at you. You know, like, oh, these, these are actually decent people in the apocalypse. Isn't that nice? They're actually, you know, you thought they were terrible, but they're actually taking care of old people. Isn't that great? And then... It just ends up shitty. So, you know, you, you, you kind of... The, the guys at the nursing home, they're built up as big bads, and, and it's not in a, even a very subtle or... or not, not in a deft way. Um, it's, in fact, you cannot kind of almost see it coming. But I like it. It feels good to watch. It's something that I enjoy. So, you know, I, I, I like the reveal where he's, you know, like... The guy's like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chop him up and feed him to my dogs. And his dogs end up being these little cute, little cute yappy things in this little bed. And it's a nice little touch. But he, he presents this as a little bastion of humanity in, in the midst of inhumanity. And you, you sympathize with these guys. You like these guys. I like them right away. And, you know, I, 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 you, you say goodbye to them and you don't know what's going to happen to them. And I wanted them to be okay. I really did. But then, you know, there's that scene that we don't see where they end up coming back to the nursing home and the nursing home's been overrun and everybody's dead and or walkers. And they end up just putting all the walkers down. And here's the thing about that that is so Kirkman that pisses me off so much. Hang on, more nicotine. So... He, he does this. He sets up people you like. He sets up things that are likable. He sets up things that, that seem good. And he does that just to fuck with people. He does that. He, he sets up good stuff just so he can destroy it. You know, he sets up good people just so he can make them suffer. And you can argue that, there has, that that is something that the show has continued to do. And you wouldn't be entirely wrong because everybody on the show suffers. Everybody. Nobody is exempt from suffering on the show. Everybody ends up losing people. Everybody ends up miserable at some point or another. But the show doesn't set up good people just to tear them down. It sets up good people because it really is, and again, this is especially something that Gimple does that I like. It's, it's asking some middle level to sometimes deep questions about what goodness and badness even are and how do people retain goodness in the midst of in the midst of so much badness how do people stay human in the midst of uh, a situation that would drive them to being inhuman in such a bad way and the show preserves good people in order to have that argument not an argument that i think that it has answered yet uh, but I think that it is tending toward, you know, the idea that goodness is, is worth something and good people are worth something and protecting life and protecting goodness is worth something. And I don't feel like Kirkman believes that. And this, this, this again, like I have a very strong anti-Kirkman bias and I just, maybe I'm not giving him enough fucking credit. I don't know. But all I can judge him on is his work. And going by his work, I, I don't, I don't think that he believes that. I really think that he, he's a troll, and I think that he sets up good stuff just so he can end up destroying it. And I, I hate that because I think that it's disrespectful of goodness. It, that's not 
that is not the best way of phrasing it, but it's the only way that is coming to me at this moment, that he's, he is establishing these things that I think that most writers would want to protect, even writers who end up damaging or destroying it, you know? I've, I've, I've been a writer who has done that. I've been, a, I've been a writer who has killed people. You know, I've, I've been a writer who has established good stuff only to tear it down. But I've never really enjoyed doing that. And I've never done it just to fuck with people. There's always been a deeper reason for it. And it's always, it, almost always, it's in the interest of furthering this argument that, that goodness is worth something, that hope and faith are worth something, even in the midst of, of the worst possible things. I don't feel like Kirkman is doing that. So he he establishes this nursing home full of people that I like and care about and want to survive, and then for no fucking reason, just because the world sucks, they end up dying. And the thing that pisses me off the most about that is that we didn't see it. And I understand why some things get cut. And I, I even, like, understand that th th there almost really wasn't any good reason to include that in the show that it didn't showing it in the episode or or even you know in another episode since then it didn't it just didn't do anything for the story if if i had filmed it i probably would have cut it too but i i think then i would have almost been like okay this isn't even canon like i filmed this but i'm cutting it and i'm also casting it out of the canon this didn't actually happen we filmed it but it didn't actually end up happening and you know that's not really this that's not really the case i think for most cut scenes most cut scenes you can assume some level of canonosity uh to them and i i don't think we've ever been given any reason to think that this isn't what actually ended up happening to the nursing home in fact even it's it's even kind of important in other ways that it happened, which I'll, I'll get into in a second, but it, it pisses me off. I mean, that's all. It just it just pisses me off. There's there was no good reason for that to happen, and that is that is not the big thing that I dislike about Kirkman's writing, but it's one of the biggest. It's one of the reasons why I stopped reading. I felt like my emotions were in the hands of somebody who didn't give a shit about me, and. Sometimes that's entitlement on the part of an audience. Like there, there, are, there are things that this fandom does that, that really bother me related to being upset that their ship isn't being catered to. Um, I think that probably it's not hard to think who, of who I am talking about there. That, that you know, their fave isn't getting enough screen time or things aren't going exactly the way they wanted. Their, their particular preference for the story isn't being catered to. That they're owed something by creators, that the creators aren't delivering. And, you know, first of all, that's what fan fiction's for. Like, get over it. But also, I really, I do believe as a creator that creators have some responsibility to the emotions, to the hearts and the minds of their audience. It's one of the reasons why I, like I said, I don't pull awful suffering shit, at least in my fan fiction, uh, for, for no good reason. There's always something going on behind it and there's always some light to counterbalance the dark. I, I, I really feel like I have an obligation to my readers to not fuck with them for no good reason even though sometimes it is kind of fun to do that in, in, you know, minor ways. But Kirkman is just a troll. And, yeah, even, even the good stuff that he's doing in this episode bothers me for that reason. I, I feel like it is the writing of somebody who is out to hurt their audience. No, for no reason other than it is fun to hurt them. I never really read the letters in the back of the comic issues, uh, but... 
the from what I have heard other I don't really want to go back and look but from what I have heard from other people he kind of makes that more explicit in his answering those letters that he's out to fuck with people and I, I just I have no respect for that if you don't respect me as an audience member I have no respect for you as a creator all right let me have let me have some more lemonade and I'll get into why this is also keeping with a pattern that I think is actually kind of important so why do I actually think that to some degree it's not a good thing, but it, it is, it becomes an important part of the overall fabric of the story that the nursing home ends up getting overrun. Put aside the fact that we didn't see it. Put aside all of the, all of the ethical problems, uh, all the narrative ethical problems I have with it. I think it's important that it happens because it establishes really early on that there is no place no place, with, with one significant exception, that this group, which will you know, eventually be called Team Family by, by us, that there is no place that this group walks into. There is no community, there is no collection of people, there is no town, there is no nothing that this group of people walks into and doesn't end up somehow leaving in ruins. Nothing. Team family is the worst news. If you see them coming toward you, like turn and run the other way or do everything you can to keep them away from you. And in fact, if they interact with you, you're probably probably already done once they end up leaving. While they're there, you might be kind of okay, although you're probably still in for it to some degree. But when they leave, they leave places in ruins. This is, this is true of the Atlanta, places where they live, but, but also places they just encounter. Uh, the Atlanta camp ends up overrun, and then they break it up. CDC ends up blown up and burned down. The farm ends up burned down and overrun. The prison ends up blown up, burned down, and overrun. Woodbury ends up ends up overrun and burned down eventually because the governor is spiteful. Terminus ends up blown up, burned down, and overrun. Richmond is overrun before they even fucking get there. Uh, then the hilltop, you know, is hanging in there. And I think that when season nine starts, it's probably going to be in pretty decent shape because they're building and everything. Uh, but, but hilltop's been peppered full of holes and also overrun a number of points. The uh, safe zone, uh, how many times has that place been burned down and overrun and blown up also? I, I, don't, I don't know how any of those buildings are still standing any of them. I wouldn't even want to live there anymore. Bad shit just keeps happening. Uh, the sanctuary, um, overrun and also blown up and also full of bullet holes. The kingdom, emptied out and I, I don't remember if I got overrun or not, but there at least was a small fire. At any rate, it got emptied out and there were some problems. Uh, Oceanside? Oceanside is, you know, hanging in there but they ended up having some of their own problems. I think mostly uh, lack of proximity ended up kind of saving them to some degree. Also, uh, the writers still have some purpose for them. That is key. Hang on, pin in that. And of course, you know, Jadis's junkyard. Now, the team family didn't end up doing that. That is a really key thing for the most part. Team family doesn't end up destroying the places that they leave in ruins. It's their, it is their entry into the story of these places that ends up causing these places to be left in ruins. So, you know, no, Simon and his men came in and, and killed everybody at the junkyard. But the point is, the junkyard isn't around anymore. And why this is important is that it means that this isn't even really about how team family operates. This is about how the writers operate. As soon as the writers have no need for a place anymore, it's done. 
it's destroyed. They don't just go, okay, we're not gonna be here anymore, so let's move on. They leave because everything is ruined. A place being blown up, burned down, and overrun is how the writers signal, we're done with this place. We won't be seeing this place again. That happened with the nursing home, even though we didn't end up seeing it. It still happened. And it, you know, it was because the writers had no more purpose for it anymore. We didn't, we didn't even, you know, we didn't even like, okay, goodbye, old people and nice people taking care of the old people. You know, we don't know what will happen to you, but we're, we're done and we have no more reason to interact with you and we're leaving now. The writers closed that story out because it was done. They didn't even leave the possibility that we might see them again. So we won't. And of course, this, you know, this is where, I'm sorry, this is where I veer into my thing where I don't believe that, don't necessarily believe that Beth is for 100% sure dead. Grady is the big exception to that. Grady is, as far as we know, still standing. Now, you know, maybe not. Maybe like the nursing home, there's shit we didn't see. But Grady is still around. And to me, that suggests that we might not be done with it. Because stuff like that, loose ends tend to hang like that because the writers end up, intend to pick them up again. And the reason I'm mentioning that at this point is because this is the establishment of that rule. Before we even leave the Atlanta camp, it's established here at this point. And I just, I'm gonna come back to that because I think that that's important. It's, it's a major point in my whole kind of team defiance, Beth might not be dead, Beth truther, jet fuel doesn't melt steel beams, collection of pieces of evidence, supporting evidence for why I feel the way I do. Okay, so just like, shove a pin in that. I think it's worth mentioning at this point. I'll come back to it later on. Yeah, I just, I just, I find it noteworthy, so I'm making a note of it. Lemonade and I'll move on. Still hate that it happened. So Glenn, there's, there's just this, there's this one line um, in my notes. It's like, Daryl asks at one point when they're, you know, they're, they're, they're formulating their plan of attack for getting Glenn back, you know, that, that might end up killing them all. You know, is, is Glenn really worth that to you? And this is hilarious and sad to me because it doesn't take very long before absolutely Glenn is worth that to Daryl. Glenn is worth everything to Daryl. And the loss of Glenn just completely fucking destroys him inside. It all in caps, like Glenn is now worth everything to him. And it's, it's, it's another one of those moments that's just sad and sweet and it makes me happy and it also makes me hate everything, you know? Like, moment of appreciation for how much Daryl loves Glenn and how much Glenn loved Daryl. I mean, like, they, they were some of the, they knew each other forever. They knew each other since Atlanta. And one of the things that pissed me off so much about the overall uh, fan fandom reaction to Glenn's death back when it happened was the number of people who were mad at Daryl for it. Which is, is, is one of the situations where it's like, I can see the math that you're doing. The math that you're doing is bullshit. Like, it's complete bullshit. The person who killed Glenn is Negan. Daryl loved Glenn. That was not, when, when Daryl attacked Negan, that was not a moment of disregard for people. Like, Daryl never would have done that if he thought that Glenn would, have, would get hurt as a result of it. Daryl expected himself to die. And I felt like the, the people who were taking that attitude were just, and they were doing what I think that the ugly sides of this fandom do a lot anyway, which is just to completely devalue how much these characters care about each other and love each other. So yeah, like moment of appreciation for how much these two characters care about each other. And, and 
real frustration on my part for the fact that we, there was a, a while where we just weren't seeing much of that attachment. We saw it in season two some, we saw it I think a good bit in season three, and then just not a whole lot. And, and I don't want to be one of those people who's like, I, why is my particular thing, why is my pet thing not being shown on screen enough? There are a million characters, there's a ton of stuff going on, there's just stuff that we're not seeing, and we shouldn't assume that because we're not seeing it, it's not there. But at the same time, I, I wish, you know, it's kind of like how we're not seeing Daryl and Aaron connecting at all anymore. I, I just, I wish, I don't know, I wish we'd seen more of it before it ended up being, you know, no longer possible. Okay, last, last thing I want to note. Um, kind of the the implication, and it's it isn't made explicit, I think, until later. But the the implication that Ed is working up to sexually abusing Sophia, or is already starting to sexually abuse Sophia. Um, it's you know it's it's very clear to everybody in the camp that Ed is beating up on Carol. He's beating up on her all the time. And he's also just a shitty fucking person. Nobody in the camp, I, you know, I can't think that anybody in the camp likes him any more than they liked Merle. And, you know, for all of Merle's terribleness, I can't see Merle abusing a child. But you see, you see Daryl and Carol forming a connection based in significant part on this history of shared, this, the shared history of abuse. But there, there is stuff, this is more stuff that I, we haven't seen, we don't see, that we don't know about, the early history of this group altogether. It's more stuff that we don't know. We don't really know anything about it, and I wish we did. You know, Daryl had, just like the rest of the group knew that Ed was abusing Carol, Daryl had to know that. So Daryl is in the group watching this happen, aware of it. Did he want to do anything? I mean, I have to think that he did. What stopped him from doing something? What was his thought process like? You know, when, when he was, if he was, when he was, and I'm assuming when, because I think that if, I think that that answers itself, when he was looking the other way, you know, how, what was, what was his, what was going on in his head? And did he know about this side of it? I think that he, he, he'd kind of, Men being shitty to women, I think, is something that he had kind of incorporated into his understanding, his brutal understanding of how bad the world is. He, ha he hates it. He hated it. He hates it. I think that at that point in his life, he still, he despised it, but he just kind of was like, well, fuck, there's, you know, there's nothing I can really do about it. That's just kind of how things are. I cannot imagine that he would have felt the same way about Sophia. I, I have to think that if he knew that Ed was putting his hands on his own kid or working up to that, that he would have just fucking lost it. I want to believe that. I want to... It's complicated. Like, I, I want to believe that because... I want to believe that because I think that that is most in character for Daryl. I want to believe that because I love Daryl and I want to think well of him. But on the other hand, if that wasn't the case, if he did have a sense that something worse than the obvious was happening, and he didn't do anything about it, then that implies some really interesting stuff about his, his character arc since then. Because the, the moment in season two when he ends up torturing uh, the kid that they capture when the kid is talking about the situation where he and the guys that he was with, you know, raped a couple of little girls, and Daryl just fucking loses it in the coldest, scariest way possible and tortures the guy, which is something that Daryl normally would not do. 
Daryl normally is not, Daryl's not sadistic, it's just not who he is. But in this one case, he was so enraged that he ended up doing something that normally would be kind of out of character for him. What, what, what about that Daryl in this context? I, I just, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. This is another one of those situations where I just have questions and I don't really have any way of answering them. It's, it's kind of one of those things that, like I said, fan fiction is made for. Fan fiction would be a good way to explore that. Maybe I'll do that. But yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a big question. How, how much did he know? And what was going on in his head as he was looking away from it? And did he intend to do anything about it? Was there, was there ever a moment in his head where he was like, all right, it's bad now, but if it gets to X point, I'm gonna step in and do something. If he, maybe, did he tell Merle at some point, look, this is unacceptable and I need to do something about it. And Merle was like, no, you'll fuck up the whole thing where we're gonna rob them. Just, you know, hang back and then you can, you can go at him later on when we're busy robbing them and we're kind of beating up on them anyway. Maybe that happened. That's actually, that I think is not improbable. Like Merle actually kind of holding him back because he's not because he's like, no, you can't go at this guy ever, but just hang on until we're robbing them and then you can do whatever you want with the guy. Uh, maybe that. It's an interesting idea. Yeah, so I think that's actually, that's all I've got for this episode. There, there isn't, like I said, I don't have that many, I don't have many opinions about it, but the ones I have are pretty strong. Uh, I, I feel them deeply. I'm deep in my feelings about the whole thing. Uh, especially that last point that I made, which I'm actually thinking about more as I'm, I'm thinking about it more now than I did when I made the note. Uh, sorry, this is going up a little late. It's just kind of how this last weekend ended up shaking out, but I'll try and get the next episode up on Monday or Tuesday. Uh, thanks so much for listening. This continues to be a lot of fun. Uh, like I said last time, if there's stuff that you want me to do more of, if there's stuff that you want me to do less of, uh, if there's specific points you'd like me to explore, if there's stuff that you want me to speak to in particular, let me know. Uh, this is fun for me, but I also want it to be fun for you guys. So yeah, uh, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, take care of yourself until I speak to you next week. Bye.